The Canadian response to COVID-19 has been confused, contradictory, heavy-handed, and ultimately ineffective at stopping this pandemic. But is there an alternative? Today, I will talk about a group of doctors who say yes, there is. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Now here at the Candace Malcolm Show and here at True North, we're often very critical of the government and politicians and health bureaucrats and so-called health experts and the advice that they give to us, often hectoring, often very contradictory, constantly changing, confusing, um, and, and ultimately delivered with sort of a disdain towards regular people and our ability to make our own health decisions. Okay, so so what's the alternative? We, we don't often talk about other things that we can do to protect ourselves, other ways that we can get out of this pandemic and get back to normal. Well, today I want to do just that and talk about some alternative measures that we can take as people, as Canadians, as a society towards getting out of this pandemic. So I am very excited today to talk to Deanna McLeod. Deanna is one of the founders of a group called the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. It's a group of over 500 Canadian healthcare professionals that publish and aggregate medical information about COVID-19, COVID treatments, and vaccinations for for educational purposes. Deanna is the chair of the Strategic Advisory Committee for the COVID Care Alliance, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, and she also runs an evidence-based medical publishing firm that specializes in oncology publishing. Her firm's work has been published in some of the leading medical journals around the world, including The Lancet and the Journal of Clinical Oncology. So Deanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Candice. Okay, so first, why don't you just tell us about the Canadian COVID Care Alliance? What is this organization and what kind of work do you do? Um, so the Canadian COVID Care Alliance is a group of about 500 independent Canadian doctors, scientists, and healthcare practitioners. Uh, and we've come together to take a look at the evidence uh, surrounding COVID-19. Um, I'm sure that all of you were aware that, um, I mean, we were all thrown into this pandemic in early March. And there was a lot of chaos and excitement uh, and surprise as we were all locked down uh, and thrown into the midst of this pandemic. And so a group of us got together uh, and really wanted to take some time and look at some of the evidence and the science. It's a fast paced field. Things are changing all the time as we learn more about this virus and its treatments. Uh, and so we wanted to be positioned as an independent voice uh, that would provide balanced evidence-based information to Canadians in order to maintain informed consent. Candice, I think you just mentioned something about that, which is the right and dignity to make choices, medical choices for yourself and to direct those choices according to your preferences uh, with all of the information at hand, uh, as well as trying to reduce hospitalizations, managing that situation. And, you know, as you also mentioned, try and get us out of this pandemic as quickly as possible. Well, it's interesting, the idea of informed consent, because one of the news stories that we've been hearing about is Trudeau and the CBC kind of pushing this idea of eventually having forced vaccines. So the, the exact opposite um, of, of, of people consenting to a medical treatment or even having any kind of choice, this idea that we might be heading towards forced vaccines is, is, is truly terrifying. Um, although, you know, a year ago, the idea of vaccine mandates was, was, was truly terrifying as well. So, so, um, so, so you, you, you have, there are, there are doctors out there, there are healthcare professionals and scientists who don't agree with the current direction that say the Trudeau government is taking us with regards to vaccine mandates or mandatory vaccines. What are some of the alternatives um, that Canadians can be doing uh, to, to, to protect ourselves, to, stay safe, to stay healthy um, during this pandemic? 
Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the points that you mentioned is, you know, as it relates to informed consent, it's making sure that you have all the risks, you know, the the full gamut of risks and benefits of a treatment, as well as all the alternatives. Um, And so, uh, you know, you can visit the CCCA website to try and to get more information on the risks and benefits of vaccines. Uh, and whether mandates are warranted or even forced vaccination is warranted. Um, we've done a video recently that's actually quite compelling called More Harm Than Good that actually takes a look at a lot of the, the specifically the phase three uh, Pfizer vaccine trial, uh, the six month data, which is the most up to date data. Remember that the vaccines were approved based on two month data. And what it does is it basically dissects a lot of the uh, details of that trial and helps people understand the true risks and benefits of vaccination. And I think that that would be a really op- amazing opportunity to get informed. Um, and another part of informed consent is also knowing all of your treatment options. Uh, and I think that's something that's probably not been uh, very well focused on through this pandemic. Uh, and a lot of the messaging that we've received has been very vaccine focused. Um, so I think one of the first things that I would probably want to bring your attention to is the fact that natural immunity is actually a thing. Um, I know a lot of, you know, it is not something that can be promoted and patented and tracked and um, potentially benefited from, uh, but it's something that we all have and our immune systems are quite powerful and they have two arms to them. There's an innate branch of the um, immune system, which you can almost think of as you know, the police force, that's the one that, you know, if you do identify an invader, it comes along and, you know, boots them out of the house, so to speak. And then you have um, things like antibody, your adaptive immune system, which is like an alarm, which identifies the intruder and helps rally the the troops to to remove that. And so one of the things that we really haven't focused on a lot, uh, although we have focused on a lot of, uh, you know, vaccine-induced immunity, which is focused on antibody production, which is the alarm system, Uh, We haven't spent a lot of time focusing on how to build robust innate immunity, which could easily counter that. So that's the ability to um, rally the troops and remove the invaders should they occur. Uh, So uh, on that note, how do you focus on responsibly improving your innate immune system? Well, that relates to things like being in good health, getting good sleep, having nutraceuticals, um, making sure to take vitamin D, vitamin C, uh, you know, doing proper hygiene, you know, basic things like that, maintaining your, your health is huge in maintaining innate immunity. Uh, and then whenever, if you were, were to come in contact with, um, you know, for instance, the COVID-19, there are a lot of early treatment protocols that are available. Uh, one of the things that we've missed in our messaging related to the pandemic is the fact that the pathophysiology of COVID-19 is multiphasic, meaning it has multiple phases to it. And so, um, it is really important and you can, uh, there are very known and proven treatments that you can use at each of the different phases. And we go along into that a lot on our website. You can look for early multi-drug protocols on the CCCA website uh, for more information. Um, and some of those uh, are ivermectin and fluvoxamine. Uh, and there's been a lot of pushback with respect to ivermectin, specifically in fluvoxamine. Uh, these are generic repurposed drugs Um, And there's been a lot of talk about them not having sufficient safety data or data to support their use uh, for treatment for COVID-19. However, on that note, um, the, you know, if, if you want to be able to prove something works, then you do a phase three randomized controlled trial, but it is very common practice for doctors to take repurposed drugs and to use them off label 
uh, in ways that they feel would suit their patients. And there are proven drugs that have been used to both reduce viral load as well as manage inflammation, which are a couple of the key components of COVID-19. So. It's so interesting. I just, as soon as you uh, mentioned ivermectin, I thought of Joe Rogan and how he used it and then how there was this really, so Joe Rogan had uh, COVID. He, he said that he used like a whole bunch of different sort of um, uh, drugs to try to help with COVID once he had gotten it. And one of the examples that he said was ivermectin. And it was like, as soon as he said that, there was this really weird media campaign to sort of demonize him and um, try to discredit this idea of ivermectin saying that it was um, used for pigs or it was a horse dewormer or something like that. So can you, can you maybe try to address that, that, that issue and debunk some of the myths? Like is, is ivermectin safe? Is it, is it something that humans can take or is it like that, like CNN has told me um, something that uh, is, is only used by veterinarians? Yeah, that, I, I think that you did say that it was the media campaign, and that's clear by the fact that they're calling it horse dewormer, uh, rather than actually addressing levels of evidence and data and whether there's sufficient support for that. There's been a lot of controversy. Um, the big, you know, pharmaceutical companies would probably want you to believe that there is no data supporting that because it's a cheap drug and nobody's going to benefit from uh, using ivermectin. And so I could understand why there's a lot of money behind trying to... Uh, deep bunk or to kind of attack the benefits of ivermectin. However, from an evidence point of view, um, there are multiple, multiple phase three randomized trials that, uh, and trials that actually show benefit as early drug, as prevention, as early treatment, and even in later phases of the disease. Uh, and it's quite striking. Um, the data probably isn't to the level of quality that we usually see whenever a pharmaceutical company funds a clinical trial. Uh, but this is a safe drug that's been used for years. It, you know, was associated with a Nobel Prize. It's uh, been going on. Uh, I think there's 30 years of safety data. I mean, when we talk about safety uh, and drugs, the vaccine has only six months of safety data, and yet we're willing to call that safe, whereas ivermectin has 30 years of safety data, and we're questioning the safety there. Seems a little bit odd. Uh, it's been used widely in many populations, so that's another thing that's really great about it. Um, and in terms of efficacy, uh, these phase three trials have been collated to meta-analyses and these meta-analyses have been published and, uh, and they do show benefit for ivermectin. Although even at the public, you know, it seems at almost every level, even at the, the medical journal level, there seems to be pushback where they're very, very quick to scrutinize those studies, uh, whereas they're not as quick to scrutinize vaccine trials. Uh, needless to say that even if there weren't that level of evidence, if uh, it was shown to be able to reduce viral load, then a physician could, you know, prescribe it off label uh, and use it for treatment for uh, a patient. So this, this big push and these, this barring of doctors from prescribing it and barring people from talking about it in these mass campaigns to discredit its benefits um, seem like there's some conflict of interest going on that, that probably doesn't relate to the fact that uh, a patient is having the option to take something that could be good for them. Well, I, you know, I, I, I won't go, go into that because I, I imagine that uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical companies could still make money from selling drugs as well as, 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 as what they do. So I don't, I, don't, I don't really know why they would try to demonize a drug that they could potentially sell and, and make money off of. But one thing that politicians 
have, especially in Canada, they, they, they sort of seem to be in lockstep, lockstep on this idea that a vaccine is the only way out of the pandemic, that, that, that all we have to do is get everyone vaccinated. And that's the only, that's the only solution. And, and you don't hear doctors or top health, health experts or politicians talking about other general health measures we can take. Like I, I read one study that, that said that 78% of uh, people hospitalized with COVID, and I think it was 73% of those who had died were obese or overweight. And that's not something that you ever hear politicians talk about. You never hear them say, do you know what? It's really important that you get your weight down, that you exercise, that you eat healthy, that you make sure that you're not eating a lot of junky food or processed food. Instead, try to have like whole, whole foods and vegetables and those kind of things. You, you never hear them talking about that element of it. Why is it that, in your opinion, that the, 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 the vaccine has become this sort of silver bullet that all these politicians have rallied around. I'm not talking about the pharmaceutical companies because I, I can see how they would have their own financial incentives to try to you know, push their product. But, 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 but talking about the politicians and the, and the lawmakers and the, and, the, and the health experts, why do, why do you think they have all been so enthusiastic about the idea that we need to have vaccines and vaccines are the only way out of the pandemic? Well, that's a, that's a fantastic question and uh, probably a little bit outside of my area of expertise in the sense of, you know, I would have to enter into the realm of speculation. But there are a couple of curious things about that choice. Uh, you know, for instance, I work in the area of oncology, so that's cancer treatment. And one of the things that we pride ourselves in that area uh, is the fact that we have personalized medicine. Uh, so we're at the point where we look at individuals' risk factors, their treatment history, their clinical signs and symptoms. And we basically tailor treatments from a number of different treatments, even doing biomarkers uh, and genetic, you know, looking at their mutational records and, and, and try and customize treatments to the actual person. And so I, I do find it very strange that, you know, where there's so much sophistication and so many levels of sophistication in almost every other discipline that we would turn around and decide that, you know, we need to vaccinate uh, the whole population and that there's just one strategy that's going to, uh, you know, match the myriad of genetic profiles and histories and clinical makeup of all the different people. So I, I do agree, Candice, that you mentioned things like there are risk factors, obesity, um, cardiovascular issues. I've even seen research that says that high glucose levels um, can facilitate entry of um, the, the virus in the cells through the ACE2 receptor. So there are a lot of things that we could dig into that would, would give people tools to, to better combat that. Um, however, uh, our health professionals, our politicians, our policymakers have decided that this one size fits all approach would be best. And what's curious about that too, is that the actual study that was used, the phase three trial, um, really only looked at healthy people. Uh, and then we turned around and started vaccinating people who weren't even actually studied in the trial. Uh, for instance, high-risk individuals, frail elderly, pregnant women. Uh, so it is a very curious choice that you would, you know, study something narrowly in one group of people and then extrapolate that to everybody. Uh, it, it definitely isn't uh, sound uh, evidence to support those policies. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it is questionable. And I think the other key part that's a little bit curious about that decision by uh, health makers is to, in order to justify max vaccination, which is based on herd immunity, you actually have the concept of herd immunity is where you, you vaccinate everybody uh, in order to, you know, you vaccinate healthy people in order to stop the transmission to uh, people who are at risk. That's usually, you know, that's the concept of herd immunity. And that's what um, mass vaccination is based off of. 
Uh, however, what's really curious about this is in, in the actual phase three trials, they didn't actually measure transmission as an endpoint. So, and I think what we're all seeing now in Ontario is the fact that if you're vaccinated, you can still transmit COVID. Uh, you know, so it, it, it really doesn't make sense that we would be trying to vaccinate with an agent that can't stop transmission because that defeats the whole purpose of vaccination. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not 100% sure why we're continuing to pursue this. It's definitely something that would require a lot of scientific debate. I mean, I, would, I, would, uh, I think it would be fantastic if we could start to be asking these questions and start to be looking at the data and seeing whether it's supporting our policy. Maybe it was a good idea initially, but perhaps now we've seen that it doesn't work and we should probably uh, you know, bring in more voices. Uh, one of the things that's curious about how this pandemic was managed was that it's uh, particularly experts with uh, expertise in vaccinology and epidemiology and public health that have been managing this thing. And usually you would have emergency management professionals managing a pandemic. And you know, my thought is perhaps it's time to hand it off now uh, out of the hands of the people who are specializing in vaccines uh, and into the hands of, of people who are emergency management professionals uh, and who have expertise in a broad uh, uh, area of uh, specialties, for instance, treatment, uh, virology, immunology, and, uh, and see if we can't have a broader conversation and bring back you know, the strength of scientific discourse and multi-specialty uh, voices into this particular situation. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's, uh, those are some of my thoughts. It, well, I absolutely want to echo that because it's like the only data point that they look at is COVID and COVID deaths. And, you know, here at True North, we, we try to report on a, an array of what's happening in society. Like, I'll, I'll just give you an example. We had a report that was based on Stats Canada uh, numbers that, that, that showed that more Canadians under the age of 60 died of diseases of despair caused by the lockdowns, things like depression, suicide, drug overdoses. There's a huge opioid crisis in this country. And it's like, you know, we're, we're focused on how many people are dying of COVID and we're ignoring all of the sort of second order consequences, the, the unseen um, people who are also being affected because we, we're not looking at the economics. We're not looking at the unintended consequences. We're only looking at COVID and, and there's there's so much more to the story. So I, I completely agree. And another point I want to make, you mentioned that your specialty is in oncology. Uh, one, one of the stories that we covered over at True North is, is this. Um, in 2020-2011, 11,581 Canadian died after being put on healthcare waiting lists. So, you know, we, we have people who are not getting the proper um, checkups that are required, the proper cancer screening that is required, and they're also dying. And this is something that, that we're not really hearing about and talking about in, in, in our public policy um, discourse. So specifically this, this number, 11,581 uh, people died, is, is this something that concerns you? Um, I think the question <laughs> answer is pretty obvious, but, but what, what, what can be done and, and what, do you, what do you think about this? Um, so just to confirm, I, I can't uh, confirm the 11,000 number that you cited, but I do know that I see regular reports right across all, many specialties in cancer that say that, um, that the lockdowns of causes delayed in, in screening for sure. So what, what that means is that uh, cancers that were should be or usually are detected earlier are now more advanced. And what that means for cancer is that if you have more advanced disease, your prognosis or your chance of survival or doing well or living long uh, goes down dramatically. And that's especially so with uh, very aggressive cancers, for instance, lung cancer uh, and pancreatic cancer. I've had conversations with medical oncologists here in Canada that have seen you know changes in their practices. 
Um, I think the other thing that I've noticed too, just in terms of cancer management, is that um, you know the healthcare practitioners are 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 wearied. Um, you know, whenever we finally do open up, then all of a sudden there's this huge you know deluge of of cancer patients who come rushing in. You know, we exhaust our our, our healthcare practitioners. Uh, you know, then we lock down again, and then everybody can't come in. And you know, this type of uh, you know opening and closing is just not good for a good medical care. Um, you know, I think the other thing too is that uh, you know then you have uh, more advanced disease, you've got more complicated, more burdensome treatment protocols, uh, which require more healthcare resources. So it's really not a, a, a sustainable um, approach. Uh, and just to go back to our initial point where we were talking about, uh, you know, looking at the whole picture, uh, it seems like there's an inordinate focus on cases. Uh, you know, we were just analyzing the Ontario data recently, and we noticed that, you know, cases that the deaths have stayed and remained low. Uh, so there was a, you know, as the cases increased, uh, deaths increased in the first wave and in the second wave, but by the third wave, there was what we called an uncoupling of the cases from deaths. And so the death rates have been actually low uh, since about, I would say about March of this year. Uh, and we don't even see them going up. We didn't see them raise at all for wave three. And we're, we're not expecting to see them raise for wave four uh, with Omicron just because it's so mild. So, you know, by all definitions, a pandemic traditionally uh, was defined as something that caused worldwide sickness and death. Uh, and I think we're at the point where the death component is now missing. I think that if we decided to open up our approaches to COVID, treat COVID treatment and include multi-drug therapies, that we could probably treat those who would still be at risk. Uh, and that would free the rest of us to return to normal life. And I think that this big focus on cases and, uh, you know, with this assumption that, uh, you know, that it causes transmission and that we can actually stop transmission by you know, shutting down the economy or, or, you know, locking everybody down or vaccinating them. You know, I just don't think that those are tenable uh, positions anymore. You know, we, we've shut down how many times now uh, and the COVID-19 is still with us. You know, at best you can slow the, slow the spread for a while, but um, it's not a long-term strategy. And to your point, Candice, you know, emergency management professionals uh, what they would do is they would look at the whole picture of society. They would consider the economic costs. They would, sec you know, the secondary health costs. You mentioned opioid crisis, mental health. Uh, they would look at COVID-19 and they would look at that holistically. However, I don't really think that we can expect that people who are public health officials with no expertise in emergency management uh, and risk and, you know, harm risk reduction management uh, could be able to make those decisions. You know, personally, I think that it's not only time uh, to broaden our approach to uh, managing COVID from, you know, including treatment to acknowledging natural immunity, but that we should probably invite the professionals in uh, and, uh, and see if we can't navigate our way out, because I, I do believe that this particular position is untenable. Well, you're just you're saying so many things that are common sense and sound so good um, to me. I wish that more public health experts and people out there uh, working with governments and speaking to the media uh, would listen and, and, and take cues from what you and your organization are saying. Deanna, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us at True North and Candice Malcolm Show. Uh, can you can you just f finish off by telling our audience uh, where they can find your work, uh, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, and maybe uh, a preview of anything you, you have coming up um, from the uh, COVID Care Alliance? Yeah, so um, you you can find our work at the Canadian COVID Care uh, CanadianCovidCareAlliance.org. 
Um, it's a website. Our website is a rich resource of all sorts of, uh, of it provides a rich resources uh, in terms of COVID-19 treatment and management. We've got to things that are about building your immunity. We mentioned that on the show. We've got stuff on uh, early treatment, multi-drug therapy protocols that you can uh, look up and reference. Uh, we have upcoming work on natural immunity, how to build your natural, uh, how to build your immunity, um, and the role that natural immunity plays. Um, we've just published uh, a video called "More Harm Than Good" that dissects the the six month Pfizer vaccine trials. That's an excellent resource for uh, inform you know if you want to inform yourself as to whether vaccines are good for you, as it outlines the risks and benefits uh, of that particular uh, intervention. Um, and then we also have one called Dispelling the Myth of the Unvaccinated, which we're working on presently and hope to launch. And that looks at uh, the phase, the, the, the Ontario uh, COVID event data. So uh, cases, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and it challenges the narrative that the unvaccinated are the ones that are spreading the disease. Uh, and it really goes down and looks at all that data and as well as clinical trial data. And it really shows that... Um, that that's actually not the case. And one of the interesting points I'm sure everybody might be aware of at this point is that the rate of infection in fully vaccinated people is now higher uh, than all other groups, uh, you know, with the uh, arrival of Omicron. So it really gives us pause to, again, think about whether our current approach, our current policies, our current mandates, or even you know, uh, whether we want to stand up against forced vaccination, those are probably really great resources to look at and to consider in case you want to uh, advocate uh, for better policy locally. Okay, well, thank you so much. I encourage everyone to go and check that out. Deanna, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks very much, Candice. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show.